All right, church, well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and then grab a spot in Isaiah 43 as well. We're going to be in both places this morning. And so we've been in this sermon series called The Gospel in Weird Times for about seven, eight weeks now. And, and what I wanted to hold on to till the very end is, is something we are called to do. So I've entitled this The Gospel in Weird Times Doing. And we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, just like we saw last week of who we are in Christ. Now, what we're going to look at today is who we are producing what we do for Christ, what God has called us to do, what we are compelled by his grace and his love to do on his behalf. So let me kind of recap where we were last week if you didn't have a chance to see that. So 1 Peter 2, we see all of these different things that God has called us through Christ, that we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, all these different things that Christ has purchased us into by his blood on the cross, that we are no longer defined by our performance or our achievements or our sin or our past or our present or our future, but we are 100% and totally defined by who Christ has made us into. And this week, what we want to talk about and look at in particular is the one verb that we see in these verses, the verb proclaim, that we are called out of our being in Christ to proclaim who he is. Is to this world. So just to refresh our memories, let me go ahead and read the text for us. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, so speaking to Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, uh, I wish for a lot of reasons that we could be in this room together worshiping corporately in person, because I love to play some, some Q&A and raise your hand. And, and right now, I, I would love to do that. So maybe pop into the chat on YouTube Premiere and let us know uh, the answer to this question. So uh, raise your hand digitally uh, if last weekend you watched the Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance. Uh, so I'll give you a second to respond there. Uh, I am a founding and a card-carrying member of the Kobe Bryant Fanboys Club. I love Kobe Bryant. This, this past couple of months have been really hard as we uh, wrap our minds around everything that uh, resulted in the end of his life, and it's just been devastating. But uh, I, I, for a long time, have been one who has argued that Kobe Bryant is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. And I had this weird experience this last weekend where my heart was converted, so to speak. Now, let me just have a little aside here. I truly believe that the 2001 Lakers would sweep the 96-97 Bulls. I mean, Kobe and Shaq played against legitimate NBA players, and MJ played against, it looked like, at least on the video, against retired mailmen and assistant school principals from like Wyoming. And so I think that the Lakers would just crush them. But all that to say, I was watching this film of Michael Jordan. Not only was I reliving portions of my childhood, but, but there was this moment where I realized I was just in awe of him. His sheer tenacity and talent and power and how everything he did on the basketball court was leaps and bounds ahead of every 
everyone else he was playing against. He was playing at a different level. And, and now any arguments I make in favor of Kobe Bryant just kind of ring hollow. Like, like he is not the GOAT. That's Michael Jordan. And, and, and we just have to concede that now. And it's not just something that we know and I know statistically. I could just uh, jump off all these statistics of how Michael is better than Kobe, but now there's truly kind of a heart belief behind that as I was watching this documentary this past weekend. Now, the reason why I share that is, is we hear this command that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ Jesus. And, and what you might hear is just kind of throw out all of these stats, all of this theory, all of this knowledge about Christ. And yet what Peter is getting at here in this text is something different. What he's getting at is kind of this heart level belief that results in kind of a celebratory praise of who Christ is, that we can't contain it. It's not just about sharing facts about Jesus Christ. It's about sharing what we as his people have experienced through him. And we just look at this text for a second. It says we once had not received mercy, but now we are recipients of those who have experienced his mercy. It says we were walking in darkness, but Christ brought us up out of the darkness and placed us in his marvelous light. All of that is theologically true. And we know this in our heads, but as people of Christ, that truth has sunken into our hearts and our bones. And when we are called to proclaim his excellencies, it's meant to burst forth in praise of his glorious name for how we have experienced him. Now, now to prove this to you, let me do a little bit of grammar work in verse nine. Look back at verse nine with me of First Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, so first phrase there, we see this purpose clause, that, so that Christ has made us all into all of these identities, but he didn't just save us for our own well-being. He did do that, and we are joy because of that, but ultimately Christ saved us for his own glory, his own renown, his own fame, his own namesake. There's a purpose clause here. We have been saved and been called the people of God so that we proclaim his excellencies. Now, church, we, we have to understand this truth the Bible teaches, that God is absolutely and 100% for himself. And in God being for himself, that's good for us because then he is also for us. God is 100% for himself. Let me walk through a couple of Psalms to show this to you. First, Psalm 23. We, we love Psalm 23 and rightly so. But in verse three, there, there's this phrase. It says, Christ restores my soul. He leads me into paths of righteousness. Here it is, for his name's sake. Psalm 25, 11. The psalmist is crying out, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Forgive me, Lord, for your name's sake. Psalm 31.3, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead and guide me. And then finally, Psalm 79.9, 
Help us, crying out again to God, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Listen, what 1 Peter 2 is showing us is that God saved us into a great purpose. And that great purpose is that we would be unleashed to declare his glory and his goodness and his greatness and his grace to us. He has saved us so that we would proclaim his excellencies. The next word we see there is proclaim. This means to make known, to divulge, to herald, to declare. But, but here's the key. This is not the typical word we're going to see in the New Testament for, for preaching or teaching. Instead, this word is not used very much in the New Testament here and in one other place. And, and it's meant, it means something else. It's meant to bring about an imagery of, of kind of a springing forth of exultation, a celebratory praise of God. You could even say, instead of the word proclaim, you could just sub in the word praise. God has saved us so that we would praise his excellencies. When, when you ask me about my wife, Katie, um, I, I don't just jump into a, a bunch of information about her. She was born in Indiana on this day at this time in this hospital. She moved to California when she was this many years old. She's this height, this weight. I know not to share that or even ask that. Her hair is this color. Her eyes are this color. We had Peyton on this day. I, I don't just jump into a bunch of information about her, but you, if you ask me about my wife, Katie, instead what I'll launch into is all of the the praise of her, the things I'm most in love with her about. I, I love how God wired her and put her together. I love how she laughs at me when I'm not funny. I, I love how resourceful she is and how ambitious she is and how she cares for our children and how she, uh, she loves me and cherishes me. And, and, and I'll launch into, if you ask me about my wife, all the things that I love most about her, the things that I cherish most deeply about her. And when Peter is saying we are called to proclaim his excellencies, that's what Peter is saying. Don't just launch into a bunch of facts about God, but instead launch into this praise of who he is and how you've experienced him. Finally, we have this word excellencies. This is a Greek phrase to mean mighty acts or, or, or even praises or, or power. So in, in a way, Peter is kind of being a little bit redundant here. He is saying, so we will praise the praises of him. So again, I want you to think about this, not in terms of I'm called to do this for God, so I need to go preach and teach about him. We are called to do that. We are called to share the faith. But what Peter is invoking in us instead is this idea that we cannot even contain the praises of God. And it just comes out publicly and when with our friends and our families and those we're around. And it's less, let me tell you about who God is. And it's more, let me tell you about the transformation transformative gospel that has changed my life. Tell, let me tell you about the God who has been near me and loves me, the God who cares for me and cherishes me. This is what Peter is calling us to do. Now, when, when Peter uses these words, 
so that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him, he's actually alluding to and pointing back to a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43 specifically. And, and what he's doing with that, I believe, is giving us some of the content that we are called to proclaim about Jesus, some of the things that make Jesus praiseworthy, so to speak. So flip with me to Isaiah 43 and read along with me as we see the very things that we're called to proclaim about our great God. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. Follow along with me as I read. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, and they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Specifically, what we see in Isaiah 43 are three things about God that make him praiseworthy, the content of our proclamation. First, we know that he is excellent because he is powerful to save. Next, we proclaim him because he is excellent or he is excellent because he is kind to save. And then third, he is excellent because his, his, of his authority over salvation. All right, so first one I want us to look at together. We proclaim the excellencies of him because he is powerful to save. Now, when we're talking about the power of God, what we are saying is God possesses the resources to do whatever he wills, whenever he wills, however he wills. And specifically when it comes to salvation or deliverance, when we're talking about the power of God, what we are talking about is the fact that God is the one who possesses the resources to provide salvation for his people. Look back at Isaiah with me, 43, verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he declares about himself some titles. He gives himself some names. He says he's the redeemer, the creator, the Lord, the holy one, the king of all things. And when God gives himself these titles, he is pointing directly to his power. How do I know this? 
Well, I know this because this is all in reference to Babylon. You see it right there in verse 14. For your sake, I send to Babylon. Now, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament history, that's okay. Here's what's going on here. The people of God called Israel found themselves in captivity or in slavery to a foreign power called Babylon. Now, Babylon was the world's preeminent superpower at this time. And and the people of God were small and feeble and weak, and they did not possess the power to deliver themselves from captivity back to the promised land. But the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, declares to his people, I am powerful to save. He says first, I am redeemer. I am the one that can bring you up out of slavery and deliver you into freedom. I am the redeemer, God says. He goes on to say, I am the king of Israel. And more than that, God is saying, I am the king of all things. He is saying, I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords. My throne is above every other throne. And and even God as king, he places the rulers in their place. So this king of Babylon might have appeared to be super powerful and and appeared to be the most powerful person on earth. But what God is saying is this king does my bidding. This king bows his knee to me. This king does not do anything outside of my all-powerful reign. God is saying, I am the king over all things. And then he says, to top it all off, I am the creator. When God is talking about his creative power, what he is talking about is the fact that he created everything we see and touch and smell, everything we can engage in this world. God created it with a simple word or a breath. He created everything out of nothing. This is how powerful God is to save. And in proclaiming his excellencies, what we get to do as God's people is proclaim that God possesses the power to save anyone, no matter where they are, no matter how far they fall, no matter how far they have run from God, no one is outside the power of God to save. And we merely need to think of our own individual stories to remember this and think about this. All we need to consider is how far gone we were in our own sin, how rebellious we were. And God entered and he powerfully delivered us from our own captivity to sin and delivered us into his marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2 will tell us. And so what we get to do This is not a have to do. What we get to do is we get to proclaim to anyone and everyone, God can save you. So if you're listening and you're just kind of wandering right now and and you feel hopeless or or you feel like you're out of luck or, or whatever else, hear me. God possesses the absolute resources to save you. God can save. Next, We proclaim the excellencies of him because he is kind to save. This is about God's character, God's willingness to save. Listen, God's people, you and I, and and, and all of God's people throughout human history, we've always struggled with this temptation to look outside of God to provide the things to us that only God can provide. Specifically in the Old Testament, what you have is Israel looking to the surrounding nations and saying, 
I wanna be like them. I wanna have what they have. They're gonna look at Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and, and other countries. And they're gonna say, I want what they have. And they look outside of God for provision. And, and listen, we all do the same thing. We look outside of God for satisfaction and joy and freedom. And, and we look in all the wrong places. We run to money or acclaim or sex or control or power or relationships or whatever it might be, what we are doing is we're looking at those things to provide to us what only God can provide to us. And yet when we're celebrating that God possesses the power to save, what we're saying is none of those things disqualify us from God saving us. But what we have to recognize is that God is not obligated to save us. He does not have to save us. You see, the power alone of God to save us uh, really means nothing apart from God's kindness to save us. Let, let me share an illustration to, to try and bring this to life. Uh, I have a mortgage loan, and, and we're about 30 years away from paying that thing off, so it's a long way away. Now, Bill Gates possesses the resources Bill Gates possesses the power, so to speak, to come in and pay off our mortgage debt. And he can do it by working like 35 minutes and he won't even notice. That's how much power Bill Gates possesses to pay off our uh, home loan. And yet Bill Gates is not obligated to pay off my home loan. Instead, he has to be compelled by something else to come in and do that. He has to be compelled by compassion and care and kindness towards us to come in and pay that off. And that's the same with God. Not only does he have the power to save, but he also has the kindness to come in and save us from our sin. Look at verse 20 with me from Isaiah 43. The wild beasts and the jackals will honor, or the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Now, here's what's going on here. God is pointing to his character, his kindness to come in and save his people. He's pointing back to the Exodus event, which we'll jump into next week, where he provided his people kindly, might I add, provided his people with rivers in the desert, with water in the wilderness. And, and he even says, I provided to the wild beasts and, and the jackals, I provide them with provision. I provide them with sustenance. It's not just about salvation. It's about God sustaining us and caring for us. And, and so God possesses the power to deliver us from our captivity to our sin, but he also possesses the kindness to do us. After all, the Bible will say it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that draws us in and woos us to himself. It is the kindness of God that points the light on the fact that God is a caring and a compassionate and a loving God. He is abounding in steadfast love towards his people. It is the kindness of God that highlights his forgiveness and his ongoing grace and his ongoing mercy to us. And so again, when we're called to proclaim or praise his excellencies, we're not just pointing to his power to save, we're also pointing to his kindness to save. And we get to share it as people who have experienced his kindness towards us. 
His kindness that drew us in showed us the filth of our sin and the abounding grace of Jesus Christ to pay for our sin and call us his own. This is a beautiful reality about the kindness of God. And we get to share this. We get to share that our God is kind. Third, we proclaim the excellencies of him because of his authority over salvation. All right, so first, God is able to save. That's his power. God is willing to save. That's his kindness. But we also know that God is Lord of salvation. He is absolutely and totally authoritative over salvation. Each of, I, each of us, you and I, um, have constructed our own schemes of salvation, if we can say it that way. We might not call it salvation, but we say phrases like, when I finally make this amount of money, I'll be free. When I finally have this job or this possession, I will finally be satisfied. When I finally get this person or that person or that relationship, I will finally be liberated. And in saying those words, whether explicitly or kind of subconsciously, when we say we're going to be finally be free or finally be satisfied or finally be liberated, we're using synonyms of salvation. And yet what the Bible teaches us is that none of those things are designed to save us and none of those things are authoritative to save us. Look back at Isaiah 43 again. Let's look at verses 14, or 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. You see, what's going on here is God is showing his absolute authority to declare salvation despite what the circumstances look like. Again, he's pointing back to this Exodus event and, and he's saying, what is this great sea that blocks your escape? I can part those waters and you're going to walk on dry land. What is an army or a warrior or a chariot or a horse? Those things are nothing to me. I cause those things to fall down and they cannot rise. I quench them like a candle and it goes out. There is no more flame. God is saying, I am absolutely and totally authoritative over all things, including salvation. You and I do not possess the authority to declare ourselves or anyone else saved, but it is God alone that declares salvation. And so we get to proclaim the excellencies of his authority. Now, let me remind you of something. If God is not 100% authoritative over all things, does that make him God at all? Is he worthy of praise if he is not totally authoritative over all things? Is it worth it to spend your time thinking about and praying to and proclaiming a God who does not possess the authority to save his people. So what we get to proclaim to anyone is that God is able and willing to save, and not only that, but he possesses the right to declare salvation. Now, there's, there's two verses I left out here, and I want to reread them for us. Verses 18 and 19. Isaiah says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. 
Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This text says, don't remember the old things. Don't fixate on the old things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now, you've probably heard those words sung, or you might have seen them on a t-shirt or something. And oftentimes, what we do with that text is we kind of rip it out of its context, and and we make it very self-centered, very man-centered. God is going to do something entirely unique for me, and it's going to be outside of anything he's ever done. He's doing a new thing. And that's not at all what this text is saying. Instead, what this text is talking about is is these people that were in captivity in Babylon, they were continually looking back to Egypt and back to the Exodus event, and they were fixating on that and yearning for that. And what God is saying in this text to his people is, I am the same God that delivered Israel in Egypt, and I am the same God that can deliver you from Babylon now It might be a different country. It might be a new country. It might be a new location. It might be a new slavery, but I can deliver you. And when Peter takes this text and he puts it in the New Testament, what he's saying to God's people in the New Testament is don't look back to Egypt. Don't look back to Babylon. Instead, look back to the cross of Jesus Christ where we see our deliverance on display. He is the same God who is still delivering us. And think about this with me for a second. It is in the cross of Jesus Christ that we see the power of God on display. It is on the cross where Christ crushed the head of the serpent of Satan, where he defeated sin, where he defeated the grave, where Christ declared, it is finished. This is where we see the power of God on display to deliver his people through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is on the cross where we see the kindness of God on display. I mean, think about this. So often we try to, we, we try to turn the cross into this event that, that Christ went to begrudgingly, that he was kind of groaning and moaning the whole way to the cross, but that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus submitted to the Father's will and he joyfully fully went to the cross because he knew that in the cross it could result in our salvation. Jesus, in his kindness, in his care, in his compassion, hung from a tree in our place. We see his power and we see his kindness on display in the cross. And it is Jesus Christ alone that possesses the authority to declare forgiven as he did on the cross with the two evil sinners next to him. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is where Jesus shows he has the authority to declare salvation, where he has the authority to say, you are forgiven. So when Peter is saying, we proclaim the excellencies of him, what he is saying is we praise Christ publicly for his cross, for his work in our place. Paul, elsewhere in the New Testament, will say it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is it, y'all. This is what we're called to do. And I think it's beautiful that the Apostle Paul himself will declare to this people at Corinth, I, I was weak, I was trembling, I was full of fear, and, and I decided that I wanted to, to display the power of the Spirit at work in me, and I knew that I had no wisdom or eloquence or cool factor, but what I had is the message of the cross, Christ crucified in the place of sinners for their salvation. This is all Paul decided to to make known among anyone that he encountered. And this is what we are invited into, church. So we can breathe out for a second. We don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be cool. We don't need to be eloquent. We don't need to be wise. Instead, when we are called to proclaim his excellencies, what we get to say to the world around us, and let me just remind you, the world around us is desperately in need of hope at all times, but now more than ever. People are spiritually aware and open to the message of Jesus Christ. So we have not just the great responsibility, but the great privilege to make Christ and him crucified known to a lost and dying world. The question for us is, are we just going to spout off facts and knowledge or are we going to be a people who have experienced his grace to us so deep in our bones that it bursts forth like a spring of praise of who God is and what he's done in our lives. He has the power to save, the kindness to save, and the authority over salvation. Church, in these weird times, what we are called to do is proclaim Christ in the stead of sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has the power to save, the authority to save, but also the kindness to save. He saw a dead sinner like me and he, he knew he had the resources to save me, but he also possessed the compassion. Compelled by his kindness and mercy and compassion, he came into my life and he resurrected this dead heart and gave me new life. God, I praise you for that. And I pray that you would equip us as a church to know deeply the Father's love for us and that that would, that would just go deeper and deeper into our hearts and our minds in such a way that we cannot contain the excellencies of him, of Christ Jesus. And that you, God, would empower our words so that the hearers of our words would have the scales fall off their eyes and they would see for the first time the risen Christ Jesus, the one who saves. God, I pray there's someone listening now that is not a believer in Jesus, God, would you save now? With your power, your authority, and your kindness, would you enter their lives, into their hearts, draw them to yourself, and grant repentance and faith, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.